0: So I have a rather odd angle, we are going to talk about Thanksgiving today and I have a rather odd angle for coming at it, so just hang with me and I'll make this connection. I read this week as I was preparing this message, this was not at all what I had planned but God is very interesting and entertaining to me, how He he leads discussions and ideas and thoughts and things that I come across and conversations with some of you and things that you just, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's just there. It's all together. But I read this week that 14 to 15 percent of Americans now, today, are on some sort of antidepressant mood-altering drug, and that that has doubled in the last 10 to 12 years. And if that rate continues, Um, nearly a fourth, pretty much a fourth of Americans will be on some sort of mood-altering drug by 2025. Already, a fourth of women between the ages of 40 and 59 are on some sort of antidepressant, but it's mostly only white women. Amongst blacks, the rate is 4%, and Hispanics is 3%. I just want to talked to you this morning about anxiety and stress in America. Uh, We have a lot to be scared of, we're told, and that we have a lot we are responsible for. If you look at Facebook, it's obvious that if you aren't panicked, then you don't know what's going on. Time seems to go faster every year. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. We fear that our kids might not have a safe place, and we are seriously stressed out. Is that an accurate description <laughs> of our world? Yes. I want to talk about anxiety and stress, and believe it or not, I want to tie it to these folks right here. We're going to have a little history lesson this morning, and uh, we will get the scripture. We will make this an official sermon, but uh, the Bible verses are way later. Just going to give you a, a history lesson here. So this is our week, our holiday, where we remember the pilgrims coming to America for their religious freedom and. The day that they invited the local Indian tribes and in. they had their Thanksgiving feast, and you know we're, that's the first Thanksgiving, and it actually wasn't a holiday until Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War declared it a national holiday. It really wasn't at that time tied with the pilgrims at all, but that's what we, we tie it with today. But I just want to go all the way back to the 1500s when these folks were coming from mostly England, but some from France and Spain and, and other nations, and I just want to talk about things that were set in motion, even clear back then, that have defined our culture and they make our lives what they are today. And so when I taught high school in Elgin and I did this, this time period in this lesson, I would always start with saying that America was settled. The Europeans that came here to settle, America was settled by losers. And I don't mean that as an insult. They were the hardest working losers in the history of the world. But they were the people who had everything to gain and nothing at all to lose at home, which is why they left and came here. Because they were either persecuted for their religion or they had no money or they had no land or they had no political rights or whatever. They were the people the people that packed up and risked shipwreck and disease and death and starvation and poverty to come here to what they called that time the new world they really were so bad off that that looked like a better option than staying where they were the the pilgrims specifically were the puritans in england who did not agree that the king of England was the head of the church and that his doctrines were the doctrines of Jesus Christ, and they, they called themselves the Puritans. They wanted to purify the church, and for their refusal to join the Anglican church at the dictate of the king, they were tried, hanged, stoned. Their preachers were tarred and feathered which is have boiling tar poured over them and then rolled in chicken feathers, which sometimes killed them and sometimes didn't. It just disfigured them for the rest of their life. So they left for Holland, and they were there for several years. They didn't like their kids being raised as Dutch rather than English. They wanted their kids to speak English and be English, so they decided they would come here. But Maryland was set up by Catholics, leaving England for the same reason. Pennsylvania was set up by Quakers and Mennonites, who leaving England and Germany and Denmark and uh, France and other places for the same reason. Anabaptists from France came here. They were losers. They were the people who were so far down and out back home in Europe that coming here and starting with absolutely nothing was a better option. And they, like I said, were the hardest working losers in the history of the world. But with freedom... There's a price. The price of independence is independence. That They had absolutely no covering, no support structure, no nothing. And when they arrive here, there's no guarantees, there's no inheritances, and all they had was their own pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps sort of Protestant work ethic. But a savage land makes savage people they arrived on a strange land with a hammer and nails and a musket and powder and a knife and a Bible and maybe a fiddle and a short supply of salt pork and hardtack, and that was all they had. And all of their life, as more and more people arrived in to become what is now America, all of life was a battle, a struggle against the elements, with poverty and death always one plague or natural disaster away. In fact, Uh, The first people that came on ships to Jamestown, three-fourths of them died the first winter. They lost all their kids in some cases. Unimaginable dangers to us that these people faced. They had to come and plant a crop. There was no grocery store if their crop failed. They had to build a barn, then build a house, plant more crops, build a bigger barn, build a bigger house, make more tools, their, con- their life was a constant fight against the elements and disasters that may come. It was a constant struggle where they start out literally living in holes in the ground. Then they build barns and cabins, but they were tiny, tiny little things, and then they built more things. And as they raised their kids, I'm talking about what I would call the American pioneer type of family or experience all the way from the 1500s to the 1800s we're continually moving across toward the west and people are going out into the frontier away from civilization and government and covering and structure and and they had to make their own life and as they raise their kids in that way where they're continually building and continually taking more farmland or rangeland or whatever else it's just it's a lifestyle it becomes the culture, and it's not sin or greed in the beginning because we cannot imagine the depredations, the sickness, the filth, the absolute edge of survival that these people lived on. But their life was constantly tame more land, clear more timber, build more fences, build a bigger house, build a bigger barn, plant more crops. It was continually expanding and growing and it created a culture of striving, of poverty mindedness, of greed for more, an independence of lawlessness regarding government, a working for self rather than for country or king or master. When they didn't have a home and no government covering and they had to protect themselves and govern them themselves, it led toward a distrust of government, especially for, in religious areas, but also the justice system and taxes that were super corrupt at the time. But this distrust and rebellion sort of became systematized and entrenched, and it led to what we call the American Revolution. 200 years later, 250 years after these folks, is the American Revolution. You maybe see all of that time period as one time, but they are further from George Washington than we are. They are further before him than we are afterward. Some of you, that's blowing your mind. You thought he was like their grandson or something. Uh, There's a long period of time that happens in there i'm just I'm moving forward through time now, and so we have our American Revolution, and which is all born in um, and a distrust of authority and taxes in, and king government. and America is born. In the 1830s, a young Frenchman in his 20s is sent by the king of France to come to America and study our prison system. He and another man are sent to do an official report to the king of France what are the American prisons like? Uh, how did they run them, what do they do, what's the American justice system like, and so on. But this young man, his name is Alexis de Tocqueville, who you may have heard of. He's now a famous French historian. Because of the books he wrote, he wrote two books about America. He was way more uh, interested in what he saw as American culture in the 1830s than he was the prison system specifically. And he went home, and he did the report for the king that he was supposed to, and then he wrote these two books called Democracy in America. And when America is less than 50 years old, he makes some very astute observations about our culture that are shockingly true today because it is, it is just what America is. And, and so here's, here's the first quote that I want to read to you. This is from a 25-year-old kid from France making his observations about American culture that he saw in the 1830s. It is odd to watch with what feverish passion, Americans pursue prosperity. Ever tormented that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. Is that not amazing? Is that not hit the nail on the head? Definition of what America is. 200 years later, it is still 100% accurate. Amazing. It is odd to watch with what feverish passion Americans pursue prosperity, ever tormented that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. They cleave to the things of this world as if assured that they will never die. And yet they rush to snatch any that comes within their reach as if they expected to stop living before they had enjoyed them. Death steps in in the end and stops them before they have grown tired of this futile pursuit of that complete happiness that always escapes them. Whoa! A 25-year-old Frenchman, 200 years ago, looks at America and he says, they're never happy. They're always going for more in a way that the rest of the world is not. You think we were born into that country? Does that sound like America to anybody else? He makes this observation about the white folks' neighbors. He says, the Indian knew how to live without wants, to suffer without complaining, and to die singing. And they did. They would sing their death song as they as they passed away. They would sing, they believed they would sing their spirit into the afterlife. But he didn't see that with the white folks that lived here. He says in next one, in no other country in the world is the love of property keener or more alert than in the United States. And again, it didn't start out as a sin. It started out as as just raw, savage survival in the elements and the world that they had come to. But it entrenched itself in our culture, that our culture is we got to have more, we got to do bigger, we got to get more, we got to work harder. And 200 years later, 600 years later, here we are. Industrialization, now moving forward in time even more. Industrialization and career choice in America has led to some measure of freedom but because we as Americans we reject someone has a place or a status or a birth in life we don't have a stratified class system At least we say we don't we reject that in principle that because dad was a farmer I'm a farmer or because dad was a sailor I'm a sailor or you get assigned an apprenticeship then A young man had to make his own way in life or he'd get lost in the slums of the new economy. But choice and freedom and personal responsibility equal anxiety and fear. Now no longer is, we didn't believe in divine right anymore. We didn't believe in assignment of a place in life and you were just born into a destiny. Now it's you make your own destiny in America and you can rise to the top if you just work hard enough and that is terrifying. Because now no longer am I Do I have a place? No longer do I have an assignment that God has given me. I am responsible for everything. If this sounds like the opposite of what I preached last Sunday, it is. This is the downside of freedom, is fear. Personal responsibility equals anxiety. That If I believe I can be anything, that makes me responsible to do anything, and I can't. And that puts me on drugs because it's terrifying. We lost our belief or we rejected our belief in luck that the Eastern Asian cultures would say or karma. We rejected what the Catholics in the Middle Ages would and the Europeans would call the divine right. Some people are just born in the aristocracy and rich and other people are born kings and other people are born commoners and other people are born slaves. We rejected that and all social classes and inherited titles and And that places responsibility squarely on our own shoulders for our own success instead of our nation or a king or a lord that we serve who supplies my needs and leads me. With every new freedom, from the end of slavery in the South to the women's vote, to civil rights era, to the sexual revolution, to feminism, and now our gender-bending revolution that we're in, there is more choice and more responsibility, which equals more anxiety, more social repercussions, more fear, more loneliness, more isolation for every individual, less structure, less authority, less safety, and less rest. Back to Alexis de Tocqueville in 1830. He says this, The hatred that men bear for wealth and privilege increases in proportion as privileges become fewer and less, so that democratic passions would seem to burn most fiercely just when they have the least fuel. When all conditions are unequal, no inequality is so great as to offend the eye, whereas the slightest dissimilarity is hateful in the midst of general prosperity. The more complete this prosperity is, the more insupportable the sight of such a difference becomes. Hence, it is natural that demands for equality should constantly increase even as equality increases. Historians call this the Tocqueville effect. He predicted that the more free people would become, the more freedom they would demand. The more rights somebody gets, the more rights they would demand because in a world where... In the ancient world, where everybody believed God assigned their part and they were born into where they were born into, nobody, and there was vast inequalities between the aristocracy and the slaves and the the poor people. There really weren't political revolutions, ever. I was trying to think of it this week. Spartacus in, and the gladiators is the only one I know about in the ancient world. Nobody ever rebelled. It was just their, well, it's my place. It's their place. It's, it's who we are. God. It's everything's God ordained. But as people became more free, now we got a revolution or a riot every other day. What he is saying is that the more opportunity and equality we gain in politics or our career choice or finances or even gender, the more we exaggerate the differences that remain. In our demand to be completely free and equal with everybody else, if somebody has more money than me, that makes me angry. Even though I have more money than most of the world on. Minutia are exaggerated into catastrophes and chaos. You can see that in the college campus riots in the last three weeks. The more I have, the less I feel I have, is what Mr. de Tocqueville is saying. That prosperity actually results in dissatisfaction. In the old world, before America, before the freedom that we came up with, politically and economically, In the old world, nobody had a chance to ever change or improve their situation. But America comes along and we tell everybody, if you work hard enough, if you create your own destiny, you can be that. You can do that. You can rise to the top. You can be the best. You can change the world. And it's not true. It's just stressing everybody out. And it makes us jealous because we see the guy with the bigger boat. We see the woman who lives in that bigger, nicer house. We see the person that's more famous and gets all the attention and we think, well, I could be that too. And it ends up in anxiety and stress. Prosperity results in dissatisfaction. Political equality creates revolution. Tocqueville actually said the exact opposite of Karl Marx. Karl Marx, who invented communism, said political revolution happens because of inequalities with wealth. Tocqueville said, no, actually, if you look at every revolution in history, it's it's after times of economic prosperity. That people get more, and all of a sudden it's not enough. Is that not human nature? Is that not lust? Is that not drug addiction? Is that not food? The more I get, the more I want. And it's never, ever enough. And the same is true with freedom and civil rights and political equality. It's never, ever enough. More rights equals discontent. More freedom equals stress. Greater safety equals greater fear. I said greater safety makes us exaggerate the fears that do exist. Advertisements. Tell me that I need to covet 118 things. You have to have this, Mitch. Your life is incomplete unless you spend money and give it to us. Of those 118 things, there's probably 18 things that I really, really want to have. But I can really only afford three of them. But I will kill my body and my budget buying nine. Come on. I said, advertisers tell me there's 118 things you have to have, Mitch. And there's 20 of those that I really, really want. If I'm honest, I can really only afford two or three, but I will kill myself. I will rob God and my family and my health to buy 10 equals stress. Come on, money is huge the poorest person in this room is in the top 3% in the world and I'll bet none of us think we're rich when is it going to be enough certainly not saying quit your job but quit spending money you don't need more stuff Most of us really only think about what we want that we don't have or what we have that we might lose or how we had it better in the past or how we hope to improve. It's the American way. (laughs) Another quote from de Tocqueville in 1830. Let your jaw drop at the accuracy of this. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened, that means educated, Men, placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords, but it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow, and I thought them serious and almost sad, even in their pleasures. Two hundred years ago! He says, Americans are the most free and rich and educated people in the world. And I saw this sadness, this seriousness, this striving, that they're not satisfied. Come on, you've heard enough missionary stories to know that kids in the third world are happy. And we look at them and think, how could you be happy? I would be miserable if I had your life. And they look at you and say, how, why are you not happy? From the same passage, when all the privileges of birth and fortune are abolished, when all professions are accessible to all, and a man's own energies may place him at the top of any one of them, An easy and unbounded life seems open to his ambition. And he will readily persuade himself that he is born to no common destiny. Translation. He says, when America tells people you can be anything and do anything, and you can. Then everybody is convinced. I am born to be extraordinary. I'm born to be rich and successful. Happiness is not good enough. I demand euphoria. Quote from Calvin and Hobbes. (laughs) But this is an erroneous notion which is corrected by daily experience. The same equality that allows every citizen to dream of these lofty hopes renders all the citizens less able to realize them. While it gives clearer vision to their desires, it limits their powers on every side. They have swept away the privileges, they meaning us Americans, They have swept away the privileges of a birth class system, but they have opened the door to universal competition. The barrier has changed its shape rather than its position. When inequality of conditions is the common law of society, then the most marked inequalities do not strike the eye. But when everything is nearly on the same level, the slightest differences are exaggerated enough to hurt. It's not fair that he's got three four-wheelers and I've only got two. It's not fair that they have a four-bedroom house and we've only got a two. You have a two-bedroom house? That's more than most of the world. They have a one-room house. And we kill ourselves, literally, physically kill ourselves, striving for more. And it was the case 200 years ago, apparently. To these causes must be attributed that strange melancholy that often haunts the inhabitants of America in the midst of their abundance. And that stress of life which sometimes seizes upon them in the midst of calm and easy circumstances. In America, suicide is rare, but insanity is more common there than anywhere else. Ho! Oh, 200 years ago, when America is less than 50 years old, a Frenchman ag- ag- realizes uh, there's a new trend happening here in America. They are the freest, wealthiest, most educated people ever. And insanity has increased greater than anywhere else in the world. Because that's a heavy burden. To be free, to be responsible for our own selves is a very heavy burden. In America, enjoyments are greater, and the number of those who partake in them is vastly larger. But on the other hand, it must be admitted that man's hopes and desires are oftener blasted, and the soul is more stricken and perturbed. And stress itself is more keen. Is that not amazing? That's all from Alexis de Tocqueville. 1835, he wrote his book. That's a pretty amazing definition of American culture. And it's what we inherited. It's what we're taught by the world. And I know there are many causes of depression or anxiety or panic attacks or people's stresses and fears. Uh, There are others. I could preach a whole sermon on that being caused by broken families or unforgiveness that literally drives people insane. But one of the chief sources of our anxiety and stress of being tired all the time is our constant striving to have to work, to be better, to get more, to pay the bills, to do this or that, to save for retirement, and all this stuff that the world, our American culture, loads on us. Nobody's doing it necessarily on purpose except maybe the advertisers. I'm sure they are. They they want our money, so they're loading us with fear or guilt. The news industry wants our clicks and our views. That's how they make money. So they have to terrify us into clicking on the news story or turning on the TV. And we live in a we live in a mess. So what is the answer? The answer is thankfulness. The answer is contentment. The answer is satisfaction. That I have enough. The Indian lived without wants, suffered without complaint, and died singing. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Look at that verse again. Do you see it? Don't be anxious. Give thanks. And God will give you His peace which will protect your mind. Come on. Thankfulness makes us think straight. Fear makes us think wrong. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that fear and a sound mind are the opposite. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That that verse doesn't say that we don't have problems, or that we deny our problems, or we stick our head in the sand and think they don't exist. We've all got financial pressures, and family pressures, and performance pressures, and all this stuff. But we give them to God. We don't be anxious. You give them to God. And the peace of God, when we ask God our requests, when we give him our anxieties and our fears, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You may It's a true, real understanding. It's a real fact that you got financial problems, or marriage troubles, or kid problems or job problems, fears about anything and everything going on in the world that is truly crazy. God doesn't say those things aren't real. He says, my peace surpasses whatever you understand. And I will give you that peace, and I will guard your heart and your mind. Fear, anxiety, stress will not affect your mind. God's promise. I know that quite a few of you in this room right now deal with depression or panic attacks or anxiety. I am not in any way condemning any of you. You know who you are that I know because you've talked to me about it. I'm not saying you that you sinned to get where you're at I'm not adding to your list of responsibilities and failures here. I'm saying that I want you to be free from that. That the verses and the promises about joy and peace are not pie in the sky, nice little hopes, but I just have to deal with the rest of my life. No, you can be free and you can be healed. Whether it's biological or spiritual or emotional, I'm not here to debate. I'm saying I want you free this morning. And I know that, like I said, there are other causes for things, and I think it's actually probably one bigger than this, and it's broken families. But it's not my topic this morning. Unforgiveness is huge. Unforgiveness will make people go insane. I I saw it as clear as ever just this week up at the hospital. But this is a huge one. The stress that we put on ourselves to get more, to perform better that we're responsible for everything and anything. and it's not true. We go to a king, we get under his authority and his blessing, and we let him take care of stuff. That's not a weakness. That's not a, uh, avoiding the problems because, of, of course, we have actions. But thankfulness, contentment, satisfaction is a huge deal for emotional, heart, mental peace. It's that I have enough and I am enough, it's okay. I don't need more. Next verse. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. There it is again. Be thankful and let God's peace rule your heart. Let Him have the authority in your heart, not the things you are afraid of or the things you think you have to work for and attain to. First Thessalonians 4.10 We urge you, brethren, that you also aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. It is a horrendous lie that is not from God that I hear in school classrooms and in the church telling kids they can go out and be anything and do anything and you can change the world. That is not God's instruction. God's instruction is make it your aspiration to live a quiet life and take care of your own family. Work your job, take care of your family, love your neighbor, and you will change the world around you, but you are not responsible to change the world. Idealism is from hell. It is a burden that we cannot carry. Only Jesus is the Savior of the world. Let him run politics. And government and terrorism and r- refugees and border control and all of that. He's the king. The reason you are stressed about politics is that you think your opinion matters. <laughs> Seriously. What? I, and, and this is coming from a, I have, I'm, I'm speaking by faith here because I can get so mad I want to shoot my computer, I, or or maybe some people. I'm I'm dead serious. I am so hot-blooded about issues and truth and lies and government and righteousness. But at some point, I have to realize I can't do anything about any of it. I can send the emails. I can call my congressman. But what can they do anymore? Seriously. The executive branch has become such a dictatorship. Congress has no power. They're puppets. Seriously, our our pastor's prayer meeting on Thursday ended in a fight. <laughs> An argument over the Syrian refugee thing. And, and, and I agreed with a little bit of what everybody was saying. I kept my mouth shut. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I kept my mouth shut. Uh, but it, it ended really tense in an argument. And, and I just left thinking, we just hurt each other. And there is not a thing any of us in this room can do about it come what may, I have to just give it up and trust Jesus. As much as I know what is right, and I would tell the president if he would just listen to me, all I am doing is stressing myself out. I love you all, and I agree with most of my friends on Facebook about your political um, post that you put up, but I can't read them because I just my blood boils. And what good does it do? It's just anxiety and stress because I'm feeling responsible for things I am not responsible for. And God says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Take care of your own kids. Work your own job. Love your neighbor. Take care of your church family, the people down the street, your classmates, your students. Love the people in front of you. You're not responsible to change the world. Let me just lift that burden off of you right now. You're not responsible to change the world that is a lie from hell. I have come to despise that language because it's in the church everywhere. Jesus is the world changer. The church will, yes, but one person at a time. In your classroom, in your neighborhood, in this church, we can only be responsible for our own lives. Next scripture. First Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Come on. You see it there? Paul says, the want of more stuff causes sorrow. The medical world doesn't use the word sorrow. We have lots of other words for it. There it is in Scripture. The a cause, not every cause, but a cause of depression is trying to work too hard for more stuff. Last one, I think. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Be content with such things as you have. God never tells us we can't have wealth or be more. He just says be content where you're at. Paul says when I was rich, I knew how to handle that. When I'm poor, I know how to handle that. Poor people want to blame the rich and call them sinners. God never says that. He just says that riches are deceiving. The desire for money, the desire for more stuff is a sin. People that have it are not sinning, and they're not greedy. Quite a charge for any average American to want to be jealous of the 1%. Because worldwide, we are the 1%. So this week, let's really be thankful. And not just say thank you in a prayer. On Thursday at lunch but let's be content let's be satisfied let's break off the lies that we had inherited from our ancestors that we always got to do more build more take more get more because that's the meaning of life it was at one time survival but it's entrenched itself in our way of life and become greediness. And we don't want anything to do with that. Bow your head and close your eyes. I want to pray about this stuff. Lord Jesus, thank you for your peace that comes with our satisfaction. Lord, we give all of our anxieties to you. We give you our requests and our fears. We give you our needs We give you our wants. Lord, we give it all to you. The things that we're scared of, the things that might happen, the things that did happen that haven't been worked out. Forgive us where we have been faithless. Forgive us where we have been greedy for more, whether it's money or food or attention or drugs or lust and porn. Whatever it is, Lord, we have gotten ourselves trapped where enough is never enough. And we say now, right now, this morning, enough! Or we choose satisfaction. We choose peace. We choose contentment. We choose thankfulness. Right now, this morning. Lord, I bless every person in this room who deals with anxiety or fear, panic attacks, or stress, or depression, or you know whatever is causing it. It may not be what I'm talking about right now, but I know that it is in a lot of cases. I bless every person in this room who has dealing with that problem. And I say, enough! Be healed. You are free from fear. You are free from depression. You are free from anxiety. Be free from pressure be free from headaches be free from sleeplessness be free from panic rest in the salvation of your Lord Jesus Christ rest in His care rest in the watchfulness of your Heavenly Father say enough is enough is enough I don't need more I don't need to be more I don't need to perform more. Jesus is my Savior. God is my Father. They provide for me. They watch out for me. They fight my battles. They know my needs. All I need to do is rest and obey. All I need to do is rest and obey. Thank you, Jesus, for healing right now. Thank you for freedom. From fear, freedom from depression, freedom from anger. Lord, set us free from anger. I bless every person in this room with your supernatural peace that passes our understanding. Lord, guard our hearts and minds. Keep us from going to that place of fear, to that place of feeling sorry for ourselves, to that place of of, I can't do it all, I can't be it all. Keep us from going to that place of greed and pressure. We'll just say no to the world, no to other people that would load us with burdens that aren't yours. And we say yes to you. Your burden is easy and light. Yes, you do have work for us to do, but it's easy, it's good. And you have grace for it. Lord, forgive us for taking up responsibility and feeling stress and anger about things we cannot change. Forgive us for not doing the, the only thing that we can do, which is pray. In these things of world events. And Lord, we give it all to you. We trust you. We will obey you in what you have called us to do. And who you have called us to take care of. The people that you put in front of us. We give you the responsibility of being the Savior. You're the one who's going to change the world. You're the one who's going to save us all. Thank you for your healing and your freedom in minds and hearts and bodies right now here this morning, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.